millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. These stories contain distressing themes and brief descriptions of violence. This content is not suitable for children, and listener discretion is advised. On a cold December afternoon in 1986, a young woman's body was found hidden in the grass of a small laneway in the Buckland area of Portsmouth. People called Merry Row a wasteland, with its uneven ground and its dimly lit path hidden from the general bustle of the busier streets nearby. Savagely beaten and virtually naked, the woman's injuries appeared severe enough to have come from a heavy, blunt object. But upon closer inspection, the discovery of a shoe imprint clearly marked on her stomach would establish that many of her injuries had come from being kicked at force. Kicked by a person wearing trainers, leaving the word flash clearly imprinted. My name's Benjamin Fitton from They Walk Among Us. Welcome back to Murder Town, the podcast. Following each episode of Crime and Investigation's True Crime TV series, we'll explore another case right here. At the scene just off Lake Road, police found the woman's underwear on the ground not far from her. She had been kicked repeatedly in the face, head and body, and with her clothes ripped off, she appeared to have been sexually assaulted. All this, they assumed, the night before. The woman was identified as local 24-year-old barmaid Linda Cook. Linda wasn't working at the time and had been living at the home of her boyfriend's family for the past month. When her boyfriend, who she had been seeing since that August, was remanded in a local detention centre, she stayed on with his mum, Mrs Gray, and her two young daughters around 20 minutes' walk from where her body was found. The Portsmouth neighbourhood of Buckland sits just south of the M275's exit out of the city and east of the dockyards and the ferry port. The Docklands had been known for the world's first built dry dock, built by King Henry VII in 1495. It would go on to become one of the three operating naval bases in the United Kingdom. After the heavy bombing of World War II, the city focused heavily on rebuilding council housing. In that decade to 1955, 
9,000 houses were built with a further 7,000 that were considered unfit for human habitation. Whole areas were considered slums, and through the 1960s and 70s areas like Buckland were mainly demolished and rebuilt, mostly with mid-rise estates. When the International Ferry Port opened in 1976, Portsmouth welcomed swathes of local and international tourists and became more of a resort city. With any port city comes high crime rates. More often organised crime linked to illegal goods coming in and out, but also petty and violent crimes that often go hand in hand with drinking. The number one pastime for holidaymakers and sailors stopping in Portsmouth at the time. Historically, the city had a great number of hostels and clubs dedicated to sailors. Over time, these establishments moved on to become discos and nightclubs, notorious for late-night drinking, with locals stumbling home in the early hours as the sailors dragged their feet back to their ships. Mrs Gray, Linda's boyfriend's mum, told police everything she knew about what Linda had done in the lead-up to her murder. The morning before, the 8th, they had been together from 10.30 in the morning until 3pm when Linda went to collect Mrs Gray's daughters from school and get them tea while she went out. Just after 10pm that evening, Mrs Gray returned home and typically found her own boyfriend there waiting for her, along with her daughters and Linda. It's 11.30pm. Linda left to walk to a friend's place on Sultan Road around 20 minutes or so north, only planning a quick visit before returning home again. She arrived at her friend's, and although it was originally reported that she left there just after midnight, it has been established that it was in fact between 12.20am and 12.40am. The streets were generally well lit and residential, with some shops and some poorly lit pockets. If Linda took a slightly quicker route home that night, it would explain her being on Merry Road. But if she had walked along Lake Road, she may have been forced into that poorly lit and well-hidden pathway. The forensic examination of Linda's body backed up the police's assumption that she had been raped. Very close to the time she had left her friends between 12.30 and 1am, they believed the attack would have lasted around 15 minutes. Both Linda's jaw and spine showed fractures. Her larynx was crushed, and her head and face had been badly beaten. All these injuries had been carried out by being repeatedly kicked and stamped on as she lay on the ground. Linda had died as a result of her injuries and from asphyxia, possibly from the force of kicks to her throat. The flash logo from the right heel tread of a men's trainer showed he had, at times, used the extreme force of his heel as he kicked her. This became the first clue in the hunt for the killer. A large number of swabs were taken by the pathologist, which confirmed the presence of semen, and specifically the blood type O positive. Blood group typing was, at the time, the only DNA analysis available, and this was recorded but not released. It matched a quarter of the male population at the time, and so it was not going to be possible to pin him on that alone. 
with no semen found on the discarded underwear, it was concluded that the seminal fluid obtained from internal swabs had been deposited after her underwear was removed. Police had to consider that Linda may have had sex prior to the attack, but it would be assumed that even then minute traces of fluid would have been found on her underwear. Microfibers were taken from under Linda's nails, which had remained long and unbroken. There was no skin or blood found under them, so she hadn't scratched her attacker with any force. She may not have been able to. Although Portsmouth was not without its crime problems, murder was not a common occurrence, especially a random attack on a woman walking little over a mile from her home, and Mary Rowe was near a school playground and other areas children play. Linda's name wasn't released for two days while police gathered information. Kids who were normally allowed out as it got dark around 4pm were kept in, and as the news spread, women stopped walking around alone. There had however been a spate of rapes in the greater area of late, and the surge in sex crimes had already led to public concern. A few months earlier in May of 86, Local councillors had put forward a proposal to the social services department to set up a facility for victims of rape, a place where they could speak about their harrowing ordeals in confidence. Elsewhere in England, crisis centres had already formed and in particular, police departments had highlighted a need for greater corroboration between law enforcement and health services, particularly in regard to rape cases. 1986 saw the development of the UK's first sexual assault referral centre, named the St Mary's Centre, which opened in Manchester. In the year preceding Linda's murder, and during what was being referred to as a rape crisis, Hampshire Police had recorded 928 sexual offences, an increase of 38% on the prior year. Of these, a total of 72 rapes were recorded with a further 31 rape allegations not able to be supported with evidence. These 100 or so rapes in the county were only the ones reported to police. Law enforcement knew they had a problem, but it wasn't until Linda Cook was found raped and savagely beaten that they began to worry that they might have a serial rapist escalating to a murderer on their hands. They also had no idea if this murder was even linked to any other crimes. When Linda's name and the details of her murder were released, the killer became known as the Beast of Buckland, and the Hampshire Constabulary were under a huge amount of public pressure to catch the killer. When police released the footprint and noticed that they were on the hunt for matching shoes, the press also found a name for the murder of Linda Cook, the Cinderella Murder. The imprint on Linda's abdomen had come from a size 43, 44 or 45. Three different brands of shoes sold in the UK were found to have this same sole with its unique rubber tread pattern and flash word on the heel section. Police were hoping that someone might recognise the distinct shoe and call in. During their house-to-house -house inquiries, a person had stated that they had seen a couple who appeared to be in their early 20s, arguing right near Mary Row that night. Police appealed to the public for this couple to come forward, but no one ever did. 
At a tower block on Wingfield Street, close to the scene, a young woman named Dina Fogg gave the detectives their first possible suspect. On the night of the murder, Dina had been at the nightclub Joanna's, a local institution on the seafront at Southsea. Part of the Pleasurama complex, it had been a club for decades and in its early days was the Royal Navy School of Dancing. Joanna's was a favourite bar for Navy sailors docked in port and for locals who drank and danced there long after the pubs closed. Joanna's was notorious. That night, Dina had met a young able seaman named Michael. They had left Joanna's together around midnight and Michael had assumed he was about to get lucky. After the taxi ride to a block of flats, Dina told Michael that she needed to collect her baby from her mother's place and she would come back to the taxi, but she had no intention of returning. She had either changed her mind about sleeping with him or she had used him to get a lift home. What Michael didn't know was that Dina also lived at the tower block and as he waited for her in the taxi, she ran up the first floor, took her shoes off so as to not make any noise, and ran along the balcony to the next section of flats, disappearing home where a babysitter was watching her child, not her mother. This was around a quarter of a mile from the murder scene. Dina told the officers that after that she didn't know what had happened to Michael, but she saw him again a couple of nights later. She described this conversation as intimidating, and he was acting strange. That weirdness, however, could have been because she had disappeared on him. She did say to the police that he mentioned the murder and their close proximity to the scene. After this, she hadn't seen him, but said she would no doubt recognise him. As police tried to track down the sailor named Michael, another rape occurred nearby. Eight days into the investigation, police launched a second inquiry as another woman also in her early 20s, was raped in her home by an intruder about a mile from where Linda was killed. With no further reporting on this new attack, it can only be assumed that police were able to discount it from the Linda Cook inquiry. Three days following this, 50 miles away in Salisbury, two women were raped and murdered within 16 hours of each other. First, 25-year-old Ruth Perrett was found raped and strangled in her bed in a hospital for former psychiatric patients the morning after a party at the hostel. A window was found open. Just after midnight that night, police doing their patrol of a local park found the body of 45-year-old Beryl Deacon in a locked toilet cubicle one mile from Ruth Perrett's hostel. She too had been raped and strangled. Beryl was in town to deliver some work documents, but never made the appointment. Police were convinced that these two women were murdered by the same person and put a hundred officers on the hunt for who the newspapers had labelled Salisbury's sexed, crazed killer. The media also confirmed that Salisbury and Hampshire's investigators were working together on the possibility that the same man had murdered Linda Cook. It was also impossible for the police to ignore the still unsolved murder of Sandra Court seven months earlier. 29-year-old Sandra's body was found at the Avon Causeway near Hearn. 
She had been murdered after a night out at her own office farewell party at the Steps nightclub in Bournemouth. The taxi driver had taken her to her sister's home just after 3am. Her sister was out, and so she told the driver she was okay to wait alone out the front for her return. Sandra had been strangled, but not with a great deal of force. The fact that this was 25 miles south of Salisbury and 50 miles or so west of Portsmouth meant that it would remain on the radar. All three of these women's murders remain unsolved today. After John Cannon was convicted of killing Shirley Banks in Bristol in 1987, Cannon was interviewed over Sandra's death. Cannon was also the main suspect in the murder of Susie Lampley. Apparently, he had told a prison visitor that the person who killed Shirley Banks also murdered Susie Lamplew and another woman. Meanwhile, the inquiry into Linda Cook's murder was approaching its second month and no sailor named Michael had been interviewed. Apparently, the police had been able to identify who he was and which ship he was on. He was 18-year-old Michael Shirley able seaman in the Royal Navy serving on the HMS Apollo, and the Apollo was still in Portsmouth. Investigators were not able to interview Shirley, as he had gone on planned shore leave straight after the murder, which is possibly the reason they were not able to link him to the other three murders. But this part of the timeline is hazy. On the 5th of January 1987, Dina Fogg was at Joanna's nightclub again when she noticed Michael Shirley was also there. She got word to the police, who arrived shortly after to take Michael Shirley in for questioning. Shirley was from Leamington Spa. A few days after Linda's murder, he had gone on leave to his parents and spent Christmas there, having just returned to Portsmouth as his ship was due to leave for the Falkland Islands. Over 200 crew members of the Apollo were interviewed and asked about their movements as well as Shirley's on that particular night. So when it came to interviewing Shirley, they had other people's accounts to compare it to. They were surprised, however, that Shirley's account of the night matched exactly that of Dina's and other crew members on the ship. He didn't seem to be holding back or hiding anything. The only differences seemed to be about the exact times. He did say, though, that Dina Fogg had told him that her name was Sue, that until that moment he wasn't aware that her name was Dina. As he ran through his movements that night, he said that he believed he and Dina got a taxi from Joanna's after midnight, possibly closer to 12.30. He described Dina going to collect her baby, and then when she didn't return around 10 minutes later, he got out of the taxi, leaving it running, and spent 10 minutes looking for her. After this, he returned to the taxi to pay the driver, then walked around a little longer before deciding to walk back to the ship. He went a route he wasn't familiar with, and ended up getting in another taxi on Edinburgh Road that took him right up to the dockyard gates where he had to pass a routine security check before reboarding. That was recorded at 1.45am. At the time he got on board, he could hear the commotion of the duty switchover which was all corroborated with the ship's logs. Nobody on board particularly took note of other crew coming and going, 
And so it wasn't unusual that no one remembered seeing Michael Shirley after he reboarded the ship that night. He said he didn't remember seeing anyone near Merry Row that night and hadn't thought about it until he heard the news about the murder. He agreed that he had run into Dina a couple of days later and had mentioned their proximity, but he never imagined he would be questioned. Police put the timings together of Michael Shirley, Dina Fogg and the woman Linda was living with, Mrs Gray. They were trying to see if there was a missing gap in the timeline that might mean Shirley wasn't telling the whole truth. They knew Linda left her friends between 12.20 and 12.40 and they believed she was attacked sometime between 12.30 and 12.50. Shirley thought he and Dina left Joanna's after 12.30. Dina thought it was closer to 12, and Dina's babysitter believed she had come in right at the end of a film which, according to the TV guide, finished at midnight. Dina also remembered a snooker program on which, according to the guide, finished at 11 minutes past midnight. So from this, it was assumed that Shirley paid his taxi and began walking around earlier than he suggested, between 12.15 and 12.30, right by Mary Row matching up with when Linda's attack was assumed to have taken place. Michael Shirley had signed back onto the ship an hour and 15 to an hour and 30 minutes later, and that seemed a long time to have been walking. A week before Michael Shirley was brought in for questioning, a taxi driver had come forward to make a statement. He believed he had picked up Shirley and Dina Fogg from the taxi rank at Joanna's. He had a pre-booked job at 12.15am. It was a short trip, and he believed that had meant he hadn't got to Joanna's rank until about 12.25. This matches more closely with Shirley's belief that they were picked up closer to 12.30. Why this matters is that the case against Michael Shirley would build around a missing half an hour that seemed unaccounted for. They believed that during that 1 hour 15 and 1 hour 30 minute gap, he had murdered Linda. The belief was that, quote, in his frustrated and angry state, he attacked her, raped her, and murdered her before going back to HMS Apollo. Another taxi driver had also contacted police to say that Shirley was in his taxi 36 hours after the murder. They happened to go very near to the murder scene and the taxi driver pointed it out to him. Police questioned why, if he knew he was on that exact location right around the time of the murder and had nothing to do with it, why didn't he go to the police? Instead, he left Portsmouth for his parents. This may have been shortly before Shirley ran into Dina and mentioned their proximity. The interviewing officers had noticed something about Shirley's face. He seemed to have a number of scratches and scars and more on his arms fading away. A medical examiner noted that they looked around four weeks old, which matched the timeline, but the night Linda was murdered was particularly cold and the likelihood he had bare arms was slim. Shirley explained to officers later that he had got the scratches surfing in Barbados in October, almost three months prior. By far the biggest shock to the investigation was that on the night they brought him in, Shirley owned up to owning a pair of trainers with the Flash logo on the tread in a size 44. They were at his parents' house, 
and he said that although he may have been wearing them on that night, they may have also been at his parents. He had purchased them in Portsmouth in October. As his underclothes were bagged and his blood was taken for testing, Michael Shirley realised he was being considered a murderer and was protesting his innocence. After seven hours of interrogation, 18-year-old Michael Shirley was arrested for the rape and murder of Linda Cook. Charges followed and he was remanded in custody at Winchester Prison. His blood group soon turned out to match O-positive. The trial began a year later in the January of 1988, before Mr Justice Hutchinson. It lasted 10 days. The Crown's case was based on circumstantial evidence placing Shirley in the location and the testimony of Dean Fogg. They presented a young man hoping to sleep with a woman that night, getting angry after being dumped and coming across Linda Cook. Possibly she too rejected him and he raped and murdered her. They referred to the way he behaved towards Dean of Fogg when they ran into each other two days after the killing and his failure to go to police after being told by a taxi driver where the murder had happened. His blood was the right type. He wore the right shoes in the right size and he had old scratches at the time of arrest. Their story was one of motive and of opportunity. The defence disagreed and Michael Shirley protested his innocence throughout. They didn't think there was nearly enough evidence to convict. The prosecution built their case around four things. The matching blood type, the footprint, the scratches and the half an hour they believed was missing from Michael Shirley's account of the night. When presenting the jury with Shirley's O-positive blood type, the results of forensic testing of his clothing and underwear was also presented. It was handed over four weeks after the murder and had been washed a number of times, but small spots of blood were found on the underwear and on other items. The spots were identified as blood, but no blood group was determined. It was too difficult to say where these spots had come from and whether, in the everyday work as a seaman, blood spots may have arrived there a number of ways. No fibres found on Linda Cook's body or clothing matched Shirley's clothing, and trace fibres found under Linda's fingernails did not match any fibres from Shirley's clothes either. When the footprint evidence was brought in, the prosecution showed that he owned these trainers and had admitted to probably wearing them the night Linda was killed that it was him that kicked her in the stomach and chest, in the throat and the head, stomping until she was dead, or left for dead. But no blood evidence was found on his shoes after being forensically examined. Evidence was introduced about the UK sales of the particular shoe. It seemed that it may just have been a coincidence that Shirley happened to own a pair. In 1986, 1,058 pairs of Mark's branded shoes were imported and sold in the UK, nearly all with the logo tread. 1,721 Melrose were sold in the UK. They were not supposed to have this flash sole, but many of them were incorrectly made. Lastly, CNA's Advanti shoes accidentally attached the sole to a number of the 4,200 men's trainers they imported, so although it was impossible to have an exact figure, 
it was likely that these shoes were one of thousands being worn at the time. In Portsmouth, they were originally able to narrow the number down to approximately 250 pairs sold. A larger study into sales over the three years to the end of 1986 showed that approximately 185,000 pairs of men's shoes with this tread had been sold in the UK. Dr. Pickstock testified regarding the scratches she had personally examined on Michael Shirley's body following his arrest, offering the jury her opinions. According to her testimony, she, quote, found scars to the right cheek and right eyebrow, a wheel across the collarbone, a small heeled scratch below the tip of the left shoulder, a pink scar on the outer side of the right elbow, a similar but smaller scar across the middle of the back of the right forearm, scratches to the front of the right forearm, a well-heeled scab on the back of the right index finger, a heeled scratch on the front of the left upper arm, and two scratches just below the left elbow. It was the doctor's opinion that all the markings looked like they may have occurred four weeks earlier, which matched the time of the murder. According to a review that occurred some years later, the jury were never made aware at trial that there was no trace evidence found under Linda's fingernails linking Shirley to the attack. A great number of hours were spent at trial covering the timelines of Linda, of Dina Fogg and of Michael Shirley. The prosecution believed that if Shirley's timeline was correct and he walked for a while before getting another taxi to the dockyard gates, then he should have arrived back on board at approximately 1.15am, that a 45-minute journey was ample time to have got a little lost and get a taxi. If he arrived at 1.45am, then there was at least a 30-minute window to enable him to murder Linda but the first taxi driver's logbook had shown him doing another pickup at 12.15 and not arriving at Joanna's until 12.25. That was the time Shirley believed he had left the nightclub too. And if they did leave the club then, that would have placed Shirley waiting for Dina Fogg a lot later and therefore not likely to have been raping and murdering Linda Cook. The taxi driver's logbook was never produced at trial and Dina's witness testimony that was heard by the jury was that they had left at midnight, going against Shirley and the taxi driver. There was also something that at the trial Michael Shirley's defence team were not made aware of. Dina Fogg had given two statements to police. In her first statement, she had said she left the nightclub with Shirley at around 12.30, not 12 o'clock. The jury were not made aware of this first statement and it would be some time before Dina Fogg would admit that her second statement, the one where the time had changed to 12 o'clock and was the basis for the entire prosecution's case, was made under extreme stress. It was at the end of a 10-hour police interview. A mother and baby were waiting outside for her, calling her name. During his testimony, Shirley admitted his proximity to the murder was clear, but he had nothing whatsoever to do with it. One point not yet covered is that no member of the Navy, not one on that ship, that night or any other day after the murder had noticed any unusual scratches on Shirley, nor had anyone noticed any difference in his behaviour.
The judge's summing up of the case for the jury consisted of almost 100 pages. He left questions with them of the meaning of the scratches that the prosecution had presented as retaliation or self-defence wounds. Although the lack of trace evidence under Linda's nails was not revealed, the judge did remind the jury that no fibres from Shirley or his clothing were found on Linda's clothing, and that although it was the doctor's opinion that the scratches were four weeks old, there was no scientific method to prove this as fact. It could be a common occurrence that working seamen would have minor nicks and cuts on a regular basis. He told the jury, quote, It is not the case that if this defendant had a number of injuries inflicted on him in the course of a violent struggle on the evening when he was attacking poor Linda, is it not the fact that his shipmates would have noticed something about his appearance? Down in the mess when he gets into his bunk, goes to wash and so on, he is stripped to the waist. What, if any, significance do you attach to the fact that nobody has said, and indeed you can infer that there is nobody who could say, that there were any such injuries? What you have to ask yourself, of course, having all proper regard to the detail and to any matters in evidence which you think are material, when you retire is this, what do we make of those main planks of the prosecution's case? The fact that on this unfortunate girl's tummy was the mark of a shoe consistent with the defendant's shoe, and could have been made by the shoes that he was admittedly wearing that night. The fact that he together with about a quarter of the adult male population is in the right blood group. The fact that he was admittedly within yards of where she was killed at just about the time she was killed. The fact, if you accept it, that all the investigations that have been made of his movements from that moment when he left Wingfield Street Flats to the moment when he got back on board ship there seems to be half an hour or so unaccounted for. Michael Shelley's defence barrister, Mr Patrick Back, argued that each of the four points against Shirley, the blood type, the footprint, the scratches and the elusive half an hour were, quote, something which by itself was not probative of guilt. That is right, they were not, but it was not that they had, each one by itself, to be probative of guilt. The point was that, culminatively, were they probative of guilt? He was somebody who was stuck to his account through seven hours of interview, then for a very long period, like over a day if not more, in the witness box at trial, but nevertheless has been totally unshaken as to his avowal of innocence. So be it. The judge emphasised that what the jury must take into account was that to say it was not Michael Shirley who murdered Linda Cook meant that there were two men there at that exact moment, each wearing a pair of shoes which could leave that mark upon the body of Linda Cook. What the jury had to do was to look at all of the facts and come to their conclusion on the cumulative evidence. The jury retired at 10.08am on the 28th of January 1988, and just before 5pm, they returned with their verdict. 10 to 1. Michael Shirley was guilty of the rape and murder of Linda Cook, sentenced to life imprisonment. The following year Shirley appealed, the judges ruled that although the evidence was bare and the prosecution had brought up a large number of irrelevances which he hoped hadn't swayed the jury's decision, they were entitled to add up the elements of the four main points. Their verdict was probably one of guilt with no lingering doubts, 
and the application for appeal was refused. Michael Shirley was held in Category A prisons, reserved for offenders who posed immediate risk of escape and whose escape would be extremely dangerous to the public, police or state. He continued to proclaim his innocence, believing he was convicted on a set of circumstantial evidence that he and his counsel believed could not definitively link him to the crime. In 1992, to put pressure on the Home Office and the Hampshire Police to begin conducting DNA analysis again after new advances in screening had come about, Shirley went on a hunger strike refusing even water. His father told the press that he had been made aware of another suspect whose blood group also matched. If this was one of the reasons his son was found guilty, then they wanted to see that proven further. He also made public the fact that on New Year's Eve shortly after the murder, there had been a family row in which Shirley had got scratched. Shirley protested again, this time staging a rooftop protest at the prison refusing to come down from the roof for two days. When prison guards agreed to let Neil Humber, a journalist who believed Michael Shirley was innocent, in to talk with Shirley, he surrendered and came down. It was Humber who would finally call attention to the discrepancies in Dina Fogg's two statements, as well as the taxi driver's logbook and the possibility that the police had withheld evidence. Shirley's defiance had helped spread the word about the safety of his conviction, and now, like Humber, Shirley had a large number of campaigners behind him. Humber began working on a report, but was warned by his newspaper not to do so, and when he did, instead of attending a course, he was fired. He provided Shirley's solicitors with 49 pages from his investigation. In it, he offered the fresh evidence that might prove Shirley's innocence. In January of 1993, Shirley protested again with a second hunger strike, this time lasting 42 days. His mother told the press that until he got something in writing to show that a review was happening, he was not budging. And it was clear that if Hampshire police were asked to review their own investigation, then they were not going to own up to making mistakes. The Home Office finally agreed to a review. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juvederm.com. By 1995, no review of the evidence had occurred, but that year the Criminal Cases Review Commission was formed, though would not begin working for a further two years. Eventually, they examined the case and decided that it should be reviewed by the Court of Appeal. But the four major points that put Shirley away commission discovered that the blood spots found on Michael Shirley's clothing was his own and not Linda Cook's. It was also highlighted that the scratches on his body might have been there for some time before the murder and that it was nearly impossible to date them. A number of failings in the initial handling of evidence was also found. Advances in DNA profiling even in the time since his conviction would have disproved parts of the prosecution's case and Shirley had constantly requested further DNA testing. When requests went through, the police claimed that the swabs taken in evidence had been lost or destroyed. Then in 2001, police discovered a slide taken from one of the internal swabs of Linda Cook, followed by clothing which reappeared the following year in 2002. That June, the MP for Leamington and Warwick said publicly, quote, this long delay has imposed an intolerable strain on Michael and his family. The system failed in the original trial, and it has been decidedly sluggish in helping him clear his name. After serving the minimum tariff for 15 years, Shirley would have been released from prison had he confessed to the murder, but he refused, saying, quote, I would have died in prison rather than admit something I didn't do. I was prepared to stay in forever if necessary to prove my innocence. The Criminal Cases Review Commission was informed that the Forensic Science Service had been able to subtract Linda's DNA bands from the biological evidence on the slide, thus leaving only the DNA strands of the perpetrator. What remained was an array of foreign bands which, after further testing, were found to have not come from Linda Cook or Michael Shirley, except for one band. But it was agreed that one single band could not be solely attributed to Shirley, as it occurs in the profile of around one-third of the population. An appeal was granted after a lengthy process of reviewing the original trial and every small piece of evidence used to convict him. The appeal verdict reads in part, quote, 
It was at length accepted for the Crown in the course of argument that the safety of Shirley's conviction required this court to be satisfied, so that it was sure that this assumption of a second unknown contributor to the DNA bands found in the victim's body was true. In the result, there is nothing in the materials relied upon by the Crown, all of which we have examined carefully, to dispel the very strong probability that there was only one male contributor to the DNA found in the intimate samples taken from the victim. As we have said, it is accepted that if that is the court's conclusion, Shirley cannot have been that contributor. In short, in light of the fresh evidence obtained from the DNA profiles, this appellant's conviction is plainly unsafe. The appeal will be allowed and the conviction quashed. Michael Shirley had spent 16 years in prison. After his release, he said, I would love to meet the jury now and very gently ask them what convinced them to convict me and whether they would now. It's like crying in the dark when there's nobody there to hear you. You just sit there, knowing you're innocent, asking why people don't believe you. And it's very, very hard. Somewhere, there is someone who has got away with murder. And for all we know, may have murdered again. The killer is still free. They got the wrong man. And they have got to live with that. I'm Catherine Kelly, host of Crime and Investigation's true crime TV series, Murder Town. In the first episode, I visited Portsmouth, where Alan Grimson was labelled by a judge as a serial killer. But just how many people he killed may never be known. You can catch up now on demand. Next Monday at 9pm, I visit Wrexham, where a young man left an entire community in fear after a series of increasingly violent crimes culminating in murder. For more information on the series, head to crimeandinvestigation.co.uk and let us know your thoughts by searching for Crime and Investigation on social media or using hashtag MurderTown. The MurderTown podcast is hosted by Benjamin Fitton, researched and written by Anna Priestland, and edited and produced by Chloe Frost. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack 
for free shipping and 365-day returns. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.